Well, if we can look particularly this morning at verse 2 of chapter 2 and the words of the wise men when they uh, reached Jerusalem. And they said this to Herod, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There's a great deal of legend and mythology that has grown up around these wise men, uh, these magi as they are called in the original Greek of the New Testament. Legends have grown up around them that, uh, that there were three of them, that they were three kings, that their names were Caspar and Melchior and Balvasar. You may have heard those names. Well, none of those details are found in our Bibles, although some of our Christmas carols allow a little bit of uh, artistic license in terms of what they may say. Uh, these stories may be interesting and colourful and Christmassy, but they're not really all that important to us at all. Nevertheless, what is important, because it's in the Bible, is that these wise men, these magi, did come from the east to worship the baby Jesus. This passage here is part of God's word. It is, it is the center, it is the heart, it is, it is real. The stories, the myths, the legends are a bit like the, the trimmings and the tinsel and the stuffing and the pigs in blankets and the cranberry sauce. But the actual passage itself is the meat it's the heart, it's the message of God's word. So what do we see in the visit of the Magi, and particularly uh, these words in verse 2? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and have come to worship him. Well, three important lessons today. First of all, God draws people to Jesus from the ends of the earth. Where do these wise men come from? We are told nothing more than that they come from the east. Which way is east? Well, where I'm standing, I'm looking more or less east. Slightly southeast, I think. East is... No, I'm wrong. That way is east, isn't it? Anyway... What lies to the east of where Jesus was? Well, rather a lot of land. You cross over the Jordan into Transjordan and into Syria and Mesopotamia and into Persia and further east over the mountains into India and beyond there into Indochina and China and then to the sea and to Japan and Korea and the Philippines. Well, you get the idea. Did they come all that way from the far, far east? Probably not. We don't know exactly where these wise men came from. They may well have come from the southern part of the, the Arabian Peninsula. But that, again, is only a detail. This is the important thing. They came from outside the land. They came from a distant country. Whenever we read the Bible and we read about somebody or someone being from the east, the East often has a sense of being different, foreign, exotic, maybe suspicious. Um, 
even the sense of the East being outside the land and therefore away from the blessing and the promise of God. Do you remember when Cain had murdered his brother Abel? And we're told that Cain went to live east of Eden, outside of the place that God had blessed. There's that sense in which east means beyond, outside, somewhere else. So what's happening now? The east is coming to Israel. They're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to the promised land. They're drawn to worship the king of the Jews. And it may remind us of another journey that somebody made many years before to visit a king of the Jews. Do you remember the visit of the queen of Sheba to the court of King Solomon? She heard of his fame. She heard of his wisdom. And she came on a long journey with camels and spices and so many gifts and came all the way to the promised land to visit King Solomon. And that's a picture, that's a picture of what's happening now with these wise men. Jesus being born there in Bethlehem is like a great central magnet attracting and drawing in people from all the nations. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 66 verse 20. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations, from all the nations, as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. You know what a dromedary is, don't you? One of these uh, running camels. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. From the east, from the north, from the south, from the west. You look at a map of the world and you see where Israel is. It's right in the middle of the meeting place of three great land masses, Asia and Africa and Europe across the Mediterranean. Right there in the very heart of the earth's land is the place where Jesus was born. And now people are coming to him there. But notice something. They're coming to Jesus. They're not coming so much to a place, a location, a city, a mountain. That's what they begin by doing, don't they? They, they see this star and they say, oh yes, the, uh, the king of the Jews. Therefore, we go to Jerusalem. Therefore, we go to the palace in Jerusalem. And they get to Jerusalem and they sure enough find a king there. But that king is not the king they're looking for. It's King Herod. They're looking for another king. Why? Because the true king is down the road in Bethlehem. Jesus is the true light for all the nations. I don't know what these wise men looked like. But they would have turned a few heads, I'm sure, as they made their way into the streets of Jerusalem and then down into Bethlehem. Exotic looking, different looking, very, very foreign looking to people who lived there at the time. Well, that's what happens when Jesus Christ draws people to himself. All are invited. All are attracted. 
All are welcomed. The kings of the earth bring their glory into the city of God. Do you need to be of a particular language, ethnicity, background, or education to come to Jesus? No, you don't. You can be as different and diverse as those wise men. You can be as diverse and different as this Grove Chapel congregation here today. Our multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural diversity is part of the glory that Jesus, the King of the Jews, is ultimately the King of all the nations, the very King of kings, and all are invited, and all are summoned, and nobody is missed out from that invitation. God draws people to his Son, Jesus, from the ends of the earth. I say it again, not, not to Jerusalem, not to a mountain, not to a city, no, to Jesus himself. Well, you say, where is Jesus? He's in heaven, isn't he? Yes, he is. But doesn't he say, as we know well, later on in Matthew's Gospel, even when two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And where his people are found, meeting in the name of Jesus, there Jesus is found. Those who come here to worship at this church have come because they've been drawn to Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Son of God, from all over the world and may that long continue by God's grace the second thing we see in this passage is that God uses means to draw people to Jesus God uses means and methods and ways to bring people to his son now let's think for a few moments about this star of Bethlehem what was it all sorts of questions have been asked about what this star was. Various theories have been advanced. Was it a supernova? A star which began to shine suddenly with astonishing brilliance in the sky. Was this star a bright comet that appeared very suddenly when Jesus was born and it outshone everything else in the sky? Or was this star actually, as some have suggested, the conjunction of two planets, Jupiter and Saturn, in the constellation of Pisces in the autumn or winter sky? Well, as a bit of an amateur astronomer, I find these theories reasonably interesting. But none of them satisfy me. I'm more inclined to believe that this star was a quite supernatural miraculous star without any obvious known explanation. Why do I believe that? Because in verse 9 we read that the star that these wise men had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It was a star that led them to Jesus. It was a star with a particular purpose. But this is the point I want to make. God used this star to lead the wise men to Jesus. Without that star, and without their own understanding and interpretation of what that star was, they would never have made that journey. 
Now you might say, some of you, well that sounds a little bit dodgy to me. Are you saying, you know, astrology, horoscopes, the stars have meanings, the stars tell our fortune, we, uh, we can work out what's going to happen to us tomorrow by, by looking at the stars? Isn't astrology um, some form of the occult? And we shouldn't go consulting our uh, horoscopes in the papers and saying what star sign we are or where our Jupiter was when we were born and, and all the rest of it. Well, that is absolutely correct. We, we are not to go looking into our horoscopes. But let me make this clear. These wise men were not cheap journalists knocking up five-minute horoscopes for columns in the Daily Express. These wise men were not Russell Grant, if you remember Russell Grant. They weren't called wise men or magi, great ones, that means, for no reason at all. I think we can even say this. These wise men were about as cultured and educated and literate and wise as it's possible for anyone to be, anyone that is, who is outside the direct influence of the God of Israel and the Bible of the Old and New Testaments. These men, with all the light available to them, had studied the stars, studied ancient lore and tradition and wisdom, and they had come with the light in their own understandings that they possessed in their own culture, they'd come to a conclusion that this star in the heavens was the star of the king of the Jews. That was where they were. That was their understanding. Yes, you might say, and you'd be right, these men were pagan Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They didn't have the word of God. Their whole worldview was not informed by the God of the Bible. But that's not to say that their whole worldview was completely worthless. Every civilization on earth, in every continent, has its body of mythology and folklore and tradition. And these contain echoes and traces of the truth which comes from the one true God. You can go across Asia from west to east and you can see the various flood mythologies that they all have, even down into Australasia and into the Americas. And there is a continuity of mythology that points back to the truth that we have in God's word, albeit that truth has been distorted over many centuries. But God used the means of the star and these wise men's understanding. Why? Because he wanted to bring them to Jesus, the Lord of wisdom. Wiser than any wise man. God used means. God still uses means. Gracious means. Means suited to the people he's calling. To himself. When I went to university as an unbeliever, 31, nearly 32 years ago, I happened to be placed 
in a block of about 12 rooms, of which three or four were occupied by clear, born-again Christian believers. just happened that way, right? In the same as it just happened that Ruth found herself in the same field as Boaz. It's the Lord's will. He uses means. We've heard a lot in recent years, haven't we, many of us, about people in Muslim countries having dreams in which they see somebody who to them looks like Jesus and to them this face is the face of Jesus. And they're motivated to go to churches to look for Christians. We heard about something similar to that a few weeks ago. And when they find these churches and when they find these Christians that they have been looking for, they hear the gospel and they believe. And my point is that these dreams are a means in God's gracious providence of beginning to draw people from Muslim cultures to himself. People who would in no other human way find any Christian witness, any churches, any Bibles, any Christians. We are not saying that the dreams and the visions they see are authoritative revelation, that somehow the words they hear are like the words of the Bible. They are not, but they are means that God uses, accommodated to their own situation and understanding, you see, to bring them from where they are at the moment, to bring them to Jesus Christ. Why? Because our gracious, wise God will use any means at his disposal to summon those he calls to his Son. He's so gracious. He's so creative. God uses means. But my final point this morning is, God brings people to Jesus so that they worship him. And that's why these wise men have come. And they say so. Where is he, verse 2 again, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And that's what they go on to do. After the uh, detour to Herod in Jerusalem and then round back down to Bethlehem, that's what happens, we read in verse 11. And going into the house. House, not stable. Well, we really don't know where Jesus was, what kind of building it was. It was a building of some kind. He may have been a, a few weeks older by now, or more than he was when the shepherds came anyway. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And as before, we find in the rich color and beauty of this verse a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We read from the beginning, at the beginning of the service from Psalm 72. Verses 10 and 11, I'll read those words again, and they resonate, they resonate, they echo. 
with what we have here in Matthew. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands, they're over in the west, render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Saba, they're down in the southeast, may they bring gifts, bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Maybe we're not so far out in singing we three kings. After all, they may have been great rulers wherever they came from. They were great ones. They were not run-of-the-mill people. Then another, even more striking verse in Isaiah 60, verse 6. Listen to this. Hear the comparison with what we have here in Matthew. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Nothing about myrrh there. How interesting. Not yet. But gold and frankincense are prophesied by Isaiah. What else do these people bring? They bring good news. They bring the praises of the Lord. The gifts they bring are gifts of tribute. Gifts you would bring in the ancient world to a great king. Why do they bring gifts? Because these gifts speak of adoration, praise, worship. We we see these Wise men here in verse 11, and what do they do when they arrive at Jesus? Do they watch as Mary sort of unwraps the Christmas paper and sort of look, look at their watch, sort of giggling and smiling at each other, saying, oh, she's going to like this one, you know, the baby will enjoy this. How about this present? No, they're not doing that. They're, they're falling down on their faces. They are at the very least, they're bowing. They may be, they're lying prostrate on the ground. Because they recognize that this Jesus is a great king. Why does God draw people? Why does God bring people? Why did God bring you? Why did God bring me to Jesus? Here's the answer. That we might worship him. That we might worship him. What does that mean? What does worship actually mean? Well, it's a... Good old English Anglo-Saxon word, worship, and it basically means to ascribe worth, to tell of his worth, to say how excellent, how wonderful, how glorious Jesus Christ is. That's the great thing we're called to do. What is a church? What is this church for? Why do we meet? What's our purpose in coming together? It's exactly this. It's to show, to tell, to shout out and to sing out from heart and voice the greatness and the glory of this newborn king in all that he is and all that he does and all that he will be now and forever for us, his people. Everything that you and I might know about God. Everything that you and I might know about Father and Son and Holy Spirit 
is not true godly knowledge at all unless it causes us to worship. Merely factual knowledge of the kind that enables you to win trivial games, trivial pursuits and so forth, that's not the kind of knowledge that we're talking about here. To know God, to know Jesus, is a knowledge that must engage and demand my life, my soul, my all. The true knowledge of Jesus Christ must lead us to humble worship, glory, wonder, adoration, confession of sin, contrition, thanksgiving, praise for his rich mercy and infinite grace. Remember two weeks ago in the evening we had our brother Ian Hamilton here and uh, we heard how the Lord revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai with these words. When Moses wanted to know what God was like and said, Lord, show me your face and show me your glory and show me your name. Tell me what you're like. Reveal yourself to me, Lord. What did the Lord say? This is what he said. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What did Moses do when he heard those words? Did he say, uh, that's interesting. I've compared that to some of these other gods I've heard about in Egypt and Mesopotamia. So, okay, so you're a God who's gracious, merciful. That God's like this. That God's like that. And, and you're a God who's merciful and gracious. That's interesting. I'll do a little chart and I'll have columns. You know, the God of Israel, the God of this, the God of that. And I'll just see how they all match up with each other. No, Moses didn't do that. He didn't say, oh, that's interesting. What did Moses do? Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Because when we really meet with Jesus Christ, when we really meet with our God, that is the necessary, inevitable response. When we have a sight of his greatness and his majesty, and we realize that we are just little, weak, sinful creatures. And so when we come to Jesus, even though at this time of the year we see a tiny baby in a manger, we know what he went on to be 33 or so years later. The sacrifice and sin offering who was laid in a tomb and embalmed with linen cloths and with myrrh and other spices. Why? Why? Because our Lord is rich in mercy and gracious, extending his steadfast love to thousands of generations. And because for you and for me, feeling wretched as we may after this week when we've sinned and gone astray and 
let our families down and our friends down and let our Lord down. We hear again gracious words. I'm still the God of mercy. I still send my son for you and to you. He's alive. He's risen. He's there interceding for us. Today is a day of grace. Today is a day of salvation. We hear these words and we don't just nod in uh, notional um, interest or agreement. We say we, we fall down and worship him and say, Lord, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Lord God, have mercy on my poor soul. Lord, be with me today. Lord, be with this church. Lord, be with everyone here. Lord, be with those absent friends. Lord God, show mercy, for you are merciful. They worshipped him. Do you worship him? Let's pray together.